Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum radio show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for, bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus did. I have the privilege of having a fellow member of our Ambassadors Forum, Charles Jackson, on the show with me today. Also, we have some exciting news to announce at the end of the show, so stay tuned. Charles graduated from Furman University with a degree in Japanese, which helped him meet his wife while serving as a tent-making missionary in Japan. They have been married for 24 years and have two excellent sons and two stellar daughters, three of whom are adopted. Charles joined the Ambassadors Forum about four years ago and is passionate about the clash of worldviews as he teaches about God as he is to folks who want him to be something else. One fun fact about Charles is that he once competed in Portland's Funniest Person Contest, where he finished in the top 100. Sure, there was only 105 competitors, but that doesn't detract from the accomplishment. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. So, Charles, why did you get into apologetics in the first place? I got into it because it's where my brain and my heart naturally go. People have interests, people have passions, people follow their inclinations, and it's just where my brain and heart are always working. Whenever I hear a worldview, I analyze it from the point of view of somebody else's worldview. Mm. And whenever I hear a sermon, I agree with what the pastor is teaching. I agree with Titus or Philemon or Romans or whatever the pastor is preaching from. But at the same time, I think if my skeptical friend was here, how would he challenge this? Mm. If my atheist relative was here, how would he disagree with this? Mm. If my Hindu neighbor was hearing the same sermon, how would he or she object? And then I come up in my head with answers to their objections. Mm. That's a great attribute to have to be an apologist because a lot of Christians especially end up being in an echo chamber and they read something in the Bible and they agree with it and then they talk to other people who also agree with them and they say, look, see, everybody agrees. And so that's a fantastic perspective to have that not everyone is reading the Bible and thinking it's true. Not everyone has been saved by God's grace and has had their mind renewed. So how do you reach out to people who are still at the beginning? So that's fantastic. So what has surprised you along the way as you've gotten into apologetics? The thing that surprised me the most is that a lot of apologetic training and a lot of apologetic resources, especially maybe a decade or two ago, were geared towards answering atheist questions or agnostic questions, and they had to do with the existence of God. In the United States in 2021, a lot of the people we're talking to believe in God, but they just have a different concept of God. They believe some things from the Bible. They believe some things from inside their own heart. They believe some things from Oprah. And they've compiled a God that's different than the one in the Bible. Mm. And a lot of the apologetic resources aren't training us to reach people who are partially correct about Mm. what God is like, but partially incorrect. Interesting. We talked a little bit about that in the intro, about teaching people about God as he really is. We get that from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Yes. What's been your experience of who people want God to be, and why do you think that is? In my experience, 
a lot of the folks we interact with, the God that they believe in is a God who takes care of them, Mm. who provides for them, who wants them to accomplish all their own dreams, and his job is to help them accomplish their dreams. Mm. And he challenges them maybe to be loving or to be nice and to be generous, but he also affirms all their desires. Mm. I would call that maybe the Grammy acceptance speech God. (laughs) Or the Oscar acceptance speech God. (laughs) Where lots of folks will thank God for what he's done for them, but at the same time, they don't feel challenged to leave their relationship with their living boyfriend or living girlfriend. Sure, sure, sure. I would imagine that also being kind of the genie in the bottle God, where he, he kind of does what I want him to do, but ultimately, I'm still the person in charge. And there's lots of ways that I've heard that in the past where people say, there is a God and it's not you. (laughs) And I think a lot of people behave that way, where they say, but it's my desires, I'm a good person, if God would just bless what I want to do, everything would work out great. And they do not have this idea of God as a sovereign power who needs to be worshipped and obeyed and is in charge of the universe. They kind of keep them in that role. Yes, and they don't have the God of Job where God took everything away from Job, most of his family, his health, his riches, he had nothing. And in the end of Job, Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Yeah, yeah. That brings up a good point. If we are claiming to be able to explain God as he really is to all these people who say, well, I think he's really like something else, then what makes us think we're right? Doesn't that sound a bit pompous? (laughs) That's a great question, and that's a question that Christians who present the God of the Bible that we're challenged with sometimes. Some folks will say, you have your God, I have my God. Again, my Hindu neighbor down the street has his God. What makes you say you are right? If we were just creating our own God out of whole cloth, if this was something we had just conjured up, or if this was a God of a convention, if we once met and decided this is what we're going to say God is like, Mm. then that would be pompous of us and most likely wrong, (laughs) to claim that this is the way God really is, this is the God we've created, this is what we've come up with. But if the nature of God is that he is real and that he's revealed himself, that he Mm. wants to have a relationship with Mm. us, that he has somehow told us what we're like, if there is such a source of that knowledge, that's what we should rely on. And Mm. of course, as Christians, we do believe we have such a source Mm. in the 66 books of the Bible. Mm. Mm. That's really good. Because God is a God of revelation, that kind of changes everything. That's a part of our worldview that a lot of other, even religions, don't claim, that there's this ultimate source of authority and truth, which is revelation, and certainly not a consistent source. On the radio show last time, I interviewed Corey Miller, and he was a seventh-generation Mormon. Yes. And we talked quite a bit about Mormonism and about the Book of Mormon and how it claims to be another revelation in addition to the Bible. And that would be interesting if it weren't for the fact that the Book of Mormon is in conflict (laughs) and contradicts the Bible in so many places. And so even other religions that claim to have some kind of a revelation don't have a consistent revelation. That's a pretty bold claim for us as Christians to say 66 books— 40 different authors, written over 1,500 years, and our revelation is all consistent 
and none of it contradicts each other. It is a bold claim, and that's why we have apologetics, is to help explain to folks why it's coherent and consistent. Christian philosophy does that as well. We talk about how there are a few united themes in the Bible, there are a few united messages going from the beginning to the end. And I'll say one of those is how without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Mm. That is the main theme of the Bible, other Mm. than I am God, this is what I'm really like. In the early chapters in Genesis, Adam and Eve sin. And the very first thing killed, a lot of people would think that the first thing killed in the Bible is Abel. Cain kills Abel. (laughs) The first thing in the Bible killed is whatever animal God kills to put the coverings, the animal coverings on Adam and Eve. And that's the first example of without the shedding of blood, without the killing of something, there is no forgiveness of Mm -hmm. sins. And that's Mm -hmm. resolved all the way in Revelation where the little sacrificial lamb that was killed, Jesus, is king of everything. Mm -hmm. That's good. I think another thing that people misinterpret or get wrong is that there's 40 different human authors of the Bible. How in the world could 40 different people not colluding together over 1,500 years, how could they possibly make a work of literature that didn't contradict itself? And we as Christians believe it's because God is actually the author of the Bible. He worked through human authors to write it down, and he inspired them. It wasn't dictated to them, but he inspired them. And so I think that's another thing that a lot of people really struggle with is who authored the Bible. And something that's really helped me is when you say it's been one author of the Bible all the way through, it helps me kind of make sense. And so there's some heresies out today, just like there were a thousand years ago, just like there were 2,000 years ago. And one of them is, do you believe Jesus or do you believe Paul? Do you believe the red letters are better than the epistles? Or if it's in the New Testament, that's better than the Old Testament. And we as Bible-believing Christians believe that it's one author all the way through. And so it's not that God changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament or they were two different gods. It's been one God revealing himself all the way through all 66 books. Yes, and one God, one author. With some different themes, Esther doesn't resemble First Peter. <laughs> Revelation right. doesn't resemble Exodus. Right. You can often see the author's tone and the author's personality in those books. But there are these overarching themes that are clear. What are some of the hard things that you still struggle with reading the Bible and interpreting and putting this all together today? Excellent question. When I hear my brain interprets that as you're asking, what are the big hurdles? Yes. There are small hurdles. For example, if somebody said the Bible's not consistent because there's two accounts of how Judas died, that's a very small hurdle. <laughs> yes. Crawling babies could leap that hurdle. It's that low. <laughs> It's very easy to reconcile. There are two accounts of how King Saul died in the Old Testament. Those are also very easy to reconcile. Some folks would say in the Old Testament where one Bible book lists this many soldiers in a battle and another Bible book lists a different amount of soldiers in a battle, those are a little bit higher hurdles to cross. To me, some of the high hurdles in my own personal mind would be some of the gospel differences that are brought out by, say, Bart Ehrman Hmm. or some textual critics. When they point out some of those differences, I do struggle with those because some of those are clear differences. Some of them are easily reconcilable. Some of them are, with a little bit of effort, you can reconcile them. Some are really hard to reconcile. Mm. I admit, having heard these, I am assuming, because this is what God always does, 
that he provides great, clear, wonderful, truthful answers to those high hurdles that I haven't yet discovered. <laughs> I've put those Bart Ehrman challenges on the shelf, and I will pick them up and compare them to the Bible at some point in the future. Yeah. The one I've been working on is, in the Bible, God's a God of love. Also a God of justice, also a God of mercy, also a God of grace, also a God of patience, but he's a God of love. In the Old Testament, on a few occasions, he wipes out whole groups of people. The flood, he wipes out groups of people. Sodom and Gomorrah, he just wipes out whole towns. The Amalekites, there's a very difficult passage, I think it's in Numbers, where God wipes out the Amalekite people. And after he wipes them out, after Moses and the people kill the Amalekites as they're told to, they come back and he said, no, 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 you only killed the men. Mm. Go back and kill the women and kill the boys. You Mm. can keep the girls for yourself. They Mm. can join your Hebrew tribe, but you need to go back and kill the women and the boys. Everyone should struggle with that. Hmm. There are great answers to it. I won't reveal those answers now. <laughs> Stay tuned. Come to because our Friday of, forum. <laughs> as anyone who's taken Marketing 101 will tell you, 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 you tease the answer you're going to be revealing later. So at a Friday forum with the Ambassadors Forum, we will be talking about that. We'll be talking specifically about God killing the Amalekites hmm. and why that's not something we should do but it's something God should do, and he's just to have done Mm. it. That's a high hurdle, and I understand why folks would struggle with that sort of thing. Mm. We put ourselves in those positions, and we say, if God is good, he wouldn't do that, because I'm good, and I know what goodness is, and I wouldn't do that if I was God. And so there are good answers to it, but it requires prayer, it requires study, and it requires knowledge of who God really is. There's two things there that you brought up that I want to touch on quickly. One is the aspect of humility that we should all have as Christians. We don't have all the answers. We know somebody who has all the answers. We know who somebody who's written a book about himself, revealing himself with all the answers. But we struggle, we wrestle, we work, we study, and we try and find these things out. But sometimes it can be a long journey, and these are difficult concepts. And so I like the fact that you pointed out that we as Christians shouldn't pretend to know it all. There should be lots of things that we struggle with and wrestle with. The second is that you talked a little bit about our Friday forums. This is where we either bring in guest speakers or we have people in our ministry present on a certain topic for 30, 40 minutes, and then we have about an hour of open Q&A, and that's my favorite part of our Friday Forum. Yes, and so here, here. If you're out there listening and you've heard us on the radio, but you've never been to a Friday Forum, let me encourage you. Before COVID, they were mostly in person here at our church, but during COVID, they all went completely online and virtual, and as the state continues to open back up again, what we're going to do is we're going to have a combo live and online. And so even if you can't come to our live forums here at the church, you can absolutely dial in. And those open Q&As are wonderful. Everyone always engages, asks really thought-provoking, often very challenging and piercing questions of the presenter. And we do not back down from any question. And so if you've never been to a Friday forum, I encourage you. It's going to be great. And I think Charles is presenting in July. July 16th, I believe. Yeah. Mark your calendar. Join us for that wonderful event. 
I know another <laughs> easy topic that you've tackled in the past, Charles, was critical race theory. How did you get involved early on with critical race theory, and what do you think about how it's developed? Sure. A couple clarifying points before I answer that question. What I was interested in was a little broader than that, and it's often described, especially by Mr. Shenvey, as critical theories in general. Mm, that's good. Within critical theories, as he has labeled them, as other people have different labels for them, there are different subtopics, gender theory, queer theory, mm. certain kinds of feminist theory. Critical race theory is the big one right now. It's the one everybody's talking about, not in the Christian world, but in the greater culture at large. Right. I became interested in that because I heard some folks using some new vocabulary mm. and new concepts. Mm. And as I heard this new vocabulary and these new concepts, I realized there's a worldview under this mm. that I don't fully understand what it was. Mm. And the first one I saw, what clued me into this, and I heard this phrase a few times, but a friend of mine, she's a ordained Methodist minister in the South. We went to college together. Mm-hmm. She's currently going through breast cancer, and I hope she recovers. Pray she recovers. She shared something, I think it was on Facebook, she shared a meme where she said, I acknowledge that I have benefited from racism, I confess my privilege, and I promise to do better. Wow. I'm off slightly on the words, but that's generally what she was saying. Interesting. And as she said that, I thought, how have you benefited from racism? Mm. She's not a racist as far as I know. She's never demonstrated that. She's demonstrated the opposite. She is a Caucasian lady. Yeah. But as she shared that, and as I heard other words and phrases like that, when you hear new phrases and new words in a philosophical, social context that you've never heard often indicate a doctrine of something. Mm -hmm. And I realized there was this underlying worldview somewhere. I didn't know what it was. I don't remember how. I got onto YouTube, and I ran across a few resources One was a lecture by the lawyer and writer David French, the Christian. Mm. One was something by Christian pastor Vody Bauckham, if I Mm. pronounced his name correctly. And a few were by Neil Shenvey. Mm. And Neil also stumbled into this topic. And his answer and his dissection of the topic was great. Mm. A lot of folks will give him grief and they will criticize his description of things. But he's always filled with lots of quotes from the original sources, to mm. show that he is not making these things up. Mm. He's pointing back to the, the definitive sources. And so that's how I became interested in it. Mm. That was where I went. I realized a lot of the Christians who stumbled upon this and different critical social justice theories, they boomed maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Mm. They were created in the underbellies of sociology and humanities departments, maybe in the late (laughs) 80s, early 90s, where they just sat percolating until it was ready to partake. The Christians in the West, we were late to the party on this topic, Mm. but we're catching up really quickly. Mm. Mm. Well, as I said before, we have actually covered this topic. Neil presented at one of our Friday forums a year ago. So if you go to our website, theambassadorsforum.com, and search for Neil Shenvey, you can actually see the Neil Shenvey presentation on critical theories from about a year ago, and again, 45 minutes to an hour of open Q&A at the end, which is excellent. And I had to transcribe his Q&A section, which was a good three hours of my life, so I'm very familiar with it. All for the ambassador's form at the request of yourself. Thank you very much. Well, we also talked about you have four kids, and the oldest is how old? (laughs) There's a story behind this. The oldest is 32. Okay. 
And so, and the youngest is? 14. All right. So you've gone through the teenage years. You've gone through the years of kids going off to college and getting jobs and all these kinds of things. What has apologetics look like in your own family? In our own family, apologetics, Christian apologetics, it's been organic. It's only been semi-intentional. I would love to sit down and tell people, this is how you did it. This is your seven-step process. This is the book you follow. We didn't do it that way. Mm. My dear wife, Royale, and I do, is we sit down and we just ask these questions to ourselves out loud in front of our kids. Mm. We will challenge a Christian worldview from different points of view in front of our kids. Mm. We will say, Romans says this. You and I are not Catholic. We would say a Catholic church would not emphasize these verses of Romans. They might emphasize these verses of Romans. We might say folks who are LDS disagree with that. We would openly talk about where to find verses that, for example, establish the the divinity of Jesus, Mm. that Jesus is God. Mm. If a Mormon tells you or somebody who's in the Watchtower, Jehovah's Witness, tells you he's not God, where would you go? What is the source? Where would you find? All we did was just think out loud. Mm in a very open way, at our dinner table, in the car, on our way to school, on the way home from school. Mm. And that's what we did. And out of our kids, we have a few that are in special ed classes. And when it comes to worldview conversations, it's not where their brain goes. But our kids that aren't in special ed classes, they do gravitate towards this and they do think about these topics. And by thinking it out loud, it guided how their brains and hearts worked. Mm. And it showed them that there is in the world a clash of worldviews. There is a clash of philosophies. There's a clash of competing truths. And it showed them how to analyze those competing truths and what the truth is. Fantastic. Well, as we kind of hinted at in the beginning of this broadcast, we have some exciting news. You will be guest hosting the radio show for a while. So what do you think you'll be talking about? There are a few topics. This is the perfect segue. It follows after what you just said. One of the things I'll be doing is I'll be interviewing my daughter, who's away at college on the East Coast. She is the one out of our four kids that's the most interested in worldview study, worldview criticism, worldview explanation. She is a biology major, but she is a philosophy minor. She started out as a biology major, but as she got into it, she realized, I have to keep doing this apologetic thing because it's where my brain goes. So she (laughs) then quickly picked up a philosophy minor. Hmm. So I'll be interviewing her to ask what it was like growing up in our house, why she gravitates towards this as a 19-year-old college sophomore, rising junior now, and what she plans on doing with it. Cool. And what it's like for her on a college campus nowadays as a Christian who has been trained apologetically. Ah, very cool. Other topics. There's an author named Carl Truman who's written a book recently where he diagnoses something called the modern self Hmm. that greatly explains where our culture is in the West, in the United States. Mm. And he gets at some of the underlying presuppositions. I want to talk about the modern self. Mm. Mm. Also want to talk about our, through apologetics, where we are as the United States in 2021 as it pertains to Romans 1. Mm. Where are we with that? Mm. Does Romans 1, specifically verses 18 through 28, does it describe where we are? Is that what we're going through? Are we going through what Paul described in there? Mm. And possibly other topics as well. Awesome. Well, this has been a great time today, Charles, and I'm sure the whole, our listening audience is looking forward to 
hearing your thoughts on these other topics. So thank you for being on the show today, and we look forward to you hosting shows for a while. Thank you. I can't wait. Well, how about you? What topics are you naturally drawn to that you don't feel like you have 100% grasp on yet? What parts of the Bible are big hurdles for you? You can visit our website at theambassadorsforum.com for lots of excellent resources that'll help you, including many past episodes of this radio show on a variety of topics with a variety of guests. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.